0: to the latest Science of Sport podcast. I'm your host, Matt Solomon, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Danny Foley. So Danny is the head strength and conditioning coach at Virginia High Performance, where he specializes in working with active duty veteran military professionals. That includes special operations command and special forces personnel. Next to that, he's also got his own personal business, which is called Rude Rock Strength, which provides loads of great information on training. And he's become known for his fascia-based training applications. He's presented at numerous national conferences, and that makes him the perfect person today to discuss how you can improve your fascia using strength training. So without further ado, it's time to welcome Danny onto the show. So Danny, welcome to the Science of Sport podcast. It is an absolute pleasure to have you here.
1: Matt, thank you for having me, man. I've been looking forward to this one for quite some time. Uh, It feels really good to be a part
0: Thank you very much for joining us, mate. It's an absolute pleasure. So for those who don't know who you are, can you give us a quick introduction as to who you are and what you've been up to until now?
1: Yeah, for sure. So uh, I'm the head strength and conditioning coach at Virginia High Performance here in Virginia Beach. Uh, we work predominantly with the Special Operations Command Personnel, Special Forces. Um, I've been here for six years. For the last three, I've uh, overseen all of the training and, and programming uh, for all that we're doing on the training side. And then in addition to that, uh, my wife and I, Nicole, started up our own personal professional business back in 2018, Rude Rock Strength. Um, and we have been kind of running that as mostly a remote-based, online-based medium, uh, really just an opportunity for me to kind of talk at the clouds. But, um, you know, we're really excited with where things are at, both on the VHP and the Rude Rock side. I, I get a nice blend of working with both the tactical population and then some sport performance as well. So, I'm in a really great spot, man. I'm, I'm very fortunate to be around a lot of incredible people uh, that I can continue to learn from and, you know, uh, continue to build. So uh, really just a lot of great things going on right now.
0: Absolutely brilliant, mate. And uh, the Rude Rock Strength is definitely a good resource as well. I remember watching one of your uh, lectures on the fascia, uh, I think, probably a year and a half ago in, in lockdown. Um, and uh, yeah, here we are all this time later. We're going to discuss it today as well. So yeah. I'm uh, I'm really interested to get into it. Uh, so firstly, I think it's good to frame the conversation with like a description of what the fascia are and what they do. So what are fascia and why are they important?
1: Sure. So if we start off with uh, kind of the layman's definition here, uh, you can think of your fascial system as essentially a global connective tissue. So this is one integrative piece that really encompasses everything from head to toe. So we have fascia that encases muscles. We have fascia that, you know, encircles nerve fibers, vessels literally everything uh the important thing that i like to 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 denote with the fascial system though is that it's in addition to being a a global connective tissue it is also really just a major sensory and receptor network and so you know for that reason i think it's it's probably got a little bit more um, importance or significance than we've conventionally thought Uh, and then you know on a more technical side it's it's also a fibroelastic connective tissue um, that plays some significant role with posture, movement, performance to a degree. Um, and it's really a dynamic tissue. So we're thinking about non-Newtonian properties. There's, you know, a concept known as biotensegrity that is really developed off of compression and tension. And the fascial network just kind of, in my mind, is what humanizes our movement. If If it were really just as simple as a bunch of isolated levers and pulleys, you know, we would move much more like robots than what we see day to day. So, you know, the fascial system is something that kind of collectively integrates everything and it helps us to move with fluidity, rhythm and coordination.
0: And how does that work on, um, on like a muscular level, right? Because obviously a lot of the time we're looking at, um, muscles and maybe for example, some, some tendon ligament stuff, whatever. Um, and maybe we're not considering enough what the fascia are doing so if they're covering muscles how does that then work in terms of transmitting force what's their role there in in that
1: yeah so i guess this is a good time for me to preface our conversation today and saying that there's there's definitely still a lot of research that needs to be done and this is a difficult tissue to measure so um you know with that it we've gotten to a point now where i think we understand that this is a significant system it's a significant tissue that has you know practical implications but um, I think the research is still a little bit behind on some of these things. so it may be a TBD uh, case in terms of you know specifically identifying how much the fascial system is contributing to movement. But with that being said, the difference between muscle fascia is <clears throat> physiologically fundamentally, um, kind of thinking of it as two of the same thing doing the same thing that do different things. So what I had an opportunity here recently to go out to Anatomy Train's uh, dissection course with uh, Tom Myers. And what I noticed first was that the encasing around the muscle bellies themselves are highly, highly important for structure and support. So basically in the dissection lab, if, if you remove that encasing of fascia, the muscles kind of just flop and fall over the place. So I think for the structural piece, it just gives the muscle belly continuity and it basically keeps things in place where they're supposed to be. It's a, it's almost like a suspension support network. Then if we go into the glide or I'm sorry, into the movement piece, the big thing with the fascial tissue is that it needs to be able to glide appropriately. And this is where that fluid dynamic or the fluid properties kind of come into play because it's not just one single layer of fascial tissue there are multiple layers that are kind of you know uh, aligned together and in between these these layers of fascia we have fluids that are running that allow us to again permit movement and and be able to glide um and allow the muscles to distend and then organize from there so the important part with this is the two are inextricably linked. So I think a problem that we have with some of the semantics of the conversational piece with this is we try to look at the two as being distinctly different. And while they are, technically speaking, they are so highly integrated and correlated that the, whatever the muscle, if the muscle is being stressed, the fascia is being stressed. If it's passive, they're passive. Right. So they do work very much in tandem. And I think for all intents and purposes, the biggest thing that we need to focus on is the parameters with which we're approaching training that are going to emphasize or de-emphasize one or the other.
0: I think that, that leads us really on nicely to the to the next stage. Like, How do we go about training this? Is it, is it a trainable tissue? Is it something that we can get more wins out of? Is it something that's being under-focused um, on as such? Or is this something which is a bit benign and we should just leave it and uh, yeah, that was it. Thank you very much. <laughs>
1: Well, I suppose we wouldn't be on this call if, if it were the latter, right? Um, you know, again, I, well, maybe, I maybe it
0: could be a short podcast. I don't know.
1: <laughs> you know, I don't want to keep, you know, leading everything with the disclaimer. But again, a lot of this is undefined. So I'll speak from my experience personally. With my population, especially on the tactical side, everything that I'm doing is, is working around injuries. Injury is almost an inherent, you know, uh, consideration or variable for every athlete that I'm working with. And what I noticed really quickly was. They do not really respond well to conventional loading or to conventional, you know, training as we've all, you know, been brought up to understand it to be. Uh, they don't do well with compression. I can't just load, you know, individuals with, you know, significant back in- injury history um, with squat bars. So I had to kind of figure out some different ways to do things. And that's actually what led me into this whole fascia thing. So the way that I look at it now is, is it's not a matter of doing completely different things but rather just doing some things differently. And I think that there's a poor association with, with the fashion concepts in that, you know, especially from the conventionalists, they think that this requires us to stand on BOSU balls and do a bunch of goofy band exercises, and we have to do things dramatically different. That's not the case at all. What I've noticed is is that, you know, by kind of manipulating or modifying the training parameters, we really do a lot of the same things that you would in a conventional sense but we're just doing them slightly differently. So a couple of examples being, you know, moving in multiple directions and, and emphasizing omnidirectional movement. And this is really just kind of a, another way of saying breaking out of your your traditional three cardinal planes. I think that it, it's very reductionist to think that movement is limited to forwards, backwards, left, right, and then some internal rotation. Right. So. The omnidirectional piece is really about exploring more vectors and trying to get them to simulate and load in, in patterns that are more reflective in sport. Predominantly, we're going to move away from bilateral stances. Uh, I, I think that that, especially as athletes continue to progress throughout their career, bilateral loading, symmetrical loading with high high constraint and high external stability, um, just kind of has a, a really uh, low level of return. So we'll default more to kickstand patterns, split stance, single leg work. Um, and just trying to be a little bit more variable in our in our foundation there. And then from there, you know, I think that rep without rep concepts are great or just having intraset variability and doing things with slightly different angles, different speeds, and, you know, even using different stimuli or, or loading parameters. Accommodating resistance is another one that seems to be highly conducive with the fascial system. Um, and then kind of collectively, it's, you know, not as much of a pursuit of maximal loading um, you know, to try to just peak all of these different lifts. What, what I'm more interested in is kind of that 65 to 85% range where we're, we're moving the weight with high intent. It's, it's usually velocity driven and, you know, we'll peak throughout the year, uh, in terms of, of pursuing those high end, you know, closer to 100% numbers, but it's just much lower on the priority. So I guess to kind of, you know, uh, consolidate all of that, a fascial based approach really suggests that the coach or the practitioner is is prioritizing the quality of integrated movement rather than the quantity of isolated components and it's you know really just a matter of focusing on how well versus how much
0: so how do we then know how much influence that that training's having on the fascia right because it's it sounds really obvious that you would be using it in an exercise um, and you've given us some great ways that we can work on it but how do we know that we're improving it
1: so you know that's that's a great question, and I think the honest answer to that one is is to be determined. Um, at least from an objective standpoint, uh, you know there are there are a lot of ways that the fascial tissue is starting to be measured through sonogram and, and elastography, and and you know different types of uh, MRI contrasts, and that's all great. But I don't think that we're really at a point yet where we can tangibly, directly, and honestly say that we are measuring fascia in a in a training sense. With that, um, especially for my population, I, I veer more towards the subjective analysis of how much pain are you in? How do you feel? How are you recovering? And then the ultimate, you know, kind of litmus for me is always going to be, how are you performing? So if we're talking about conventional athletes, it's, you know, are they getting better at sport? If we're talking about the tactical realm or the military population, um, you know, just how are you operating? And I know that that's, you know, kind of a watered down answer, but. Uh, again, it's, you know, for me, I'm not going to get too caught up in the specifics of measurements or, or the, the analysis of what's doing what, because if my, if my total end goals are still being met and my KPIs are being met, then I'm going to be, I'm going to be happy with that and, and assume that what we're doing is, is pragmatic for the fascial fascial system. So for me, I look at a passive range of motion test for looking at tissue extensibility, we do a Y-balance test that's looking at more contrasting between stability and mobility. And then dynamic testing, you know, things as simple as an RSI can be indicative of having more fascial stiffness and elasticity uh, or propulsion in your jump. Uh, a three-hop test is another one that's that's a good analysis, basic broad jump skips. So there are ways that we can definitely indirectly assess this. But again, to say that it's 100% fascially um, focused or, or oriented is, is probably a little bit of a re-
0: so with that in mind then, um, what does training for fascia look like in your setting, right? So obviously you've got traditional strength training and you, you mentioned earlier, it doesn't have to be throw it all out and do some, something completely different, right? So it's small adjustments to uh, traditional strength training. So can you take us through what that might look like for one of your athletes, uh, maybe go through, for example, a session and how you're going to adjust those kind of standard strength training parameters to have a fascial focus?
1: For sure. So it, again, another caveat here for me is that I'm working with individuals in a one-on-one setting. So it's definitely a lot easier for me than for those of you who are working in the team based setting. But of course, everything is going to be very individualized and, and we're going to, you know, really build everything off of what we find in our assessments peri- assessment periods. But with that, you know, I, I come into everything with the mindset of training them to be better at their sport or better at what they do. We're not trying to get better at weights. This is just a medium. So the premise or the principles that I work off of, we're thinking more of a global based effort rather than a localized one. I want to work generally speaking from proximal to distal. So a lot of core emphasis and a lot of you know trunk orientation with what we're doing. We've already mentioned it, but omniplanar versus triplanar movement. We're thinking integrative and collective movements. And then this is another one that, you know, I, I just personally have found more more and more value with over the years, but I, I tend to find a lot of value in emphasizing variation over volume. And, and I'll mention something more on that here in a second. But if we kind of look at a, at a standard day, starting with the warm-up, so for the warm-up period, this is a great opportunity to challenge the fascial slings. Um, anterior, posterior fascial slings, the lateral, the deep longitudinal fascial sling, um, and, and really this is just going to be a compository of you know, cross-body, contralateral base movements, primitive movements, crawling, rolling patterns, and then anything that's locomotive in nature. So I'm, I'm a big fan of a lot of carry variations, skips, jumps, hops, etc. Um, during the uh, actual portion of the lift, so we get into our primary block, uh, we mentioned it, you know, reducing the presence of bilateral loading, trying to get more variable with our stances and our positions um, I'll still use a hex bar. I still deadlift. I just do most of it from a kickstand position. I still squat. Most of it is just heels off the ground or split stance or a kickstand pattern. Um, and then we still do Olympic lifts. And then, you know, in our set period, uh, for me, this is where we can, you know, so we're looking at instead of just standing around for three minutes of rest time during our primary lifts, I like to put something in that's going to build the economy and efficiency of the of the training session. So, this is where I'll do, you know, tennis ball foot smashing to kind of, you know, address the plantar fascia of the feet. This is where we can get into some iso- isometric or positional based work. Um, but in any case, the intraset period offers a good opportunity to address the soft tissues uh, specifically. And then.
0: And what, what what does that tennis ball smashing entail? Because there's there's a load of stuff that we can get into loads of detail on now. Sure. But I just wanted to. to yeah, uncover what that means because it sounds like you're throwing a tennis ball at athletes.
1: <laughs> so we're we're all probably familiar with like rolling your foot on a lacrosse ball or a lacrosse ball, um, you know, which is which is great. There's there's application for that as well. Um, you know, we have a lot of specialized like rollers and, and pieces of equipment now. But a a tennis tennis ball smash is uh just literally standing on top of a tennis ball, and what I'm trying to do is basically melt that tennis ball down into the ground, and I want you to you know, flex your toes and extend your toes and spread and try to find different points of the foot because there are a lot of contours of the foot and, you know, it's a very, very uh, sophisticated structure and there's a lot going on down there. So with the tennis ball, it actually kind of gives you compliance and allows you to navigate the foot and work different points. Um, So from a fascial perspective, not only is this just giving you some, um, you know, some mechanical input, but also too, it's, it's very good for the, the sensory motor receptors and the, the, uh, the proprioception of the foot as well. And just kind of getting things to stimulate and wake up. Um, so that's one that's very simple. And I've, I've found some success with that. You can also use a, a battle rope as well. Um, just kind of doing battle rope walks, uh, in between sets of squats, for example, that's a little bit more of a firm application, obviously, but that's another one that I think is really good for the sensory motor input. Um, and that's you know actually kind of another piece too that uh, i think is important with regards to the fascial system is is getting out of your shoes and and training barefoot where where you can you know of course there's limitations to that but um getting outside of the shoes is a is an incredibly powerful tool for the fascial system number one from that sensory motor uh perspective but then also to you know allowing the feet to work his feet and having cushioning on the shoe, especially, you know, with the way some of these these shoes are designed now, um, it really changes the kinematics up the chain and, and changes our firing sequence and, and how, you know, muscles are activating and, and where the tension and compression are being distributed for the fascial system. Um, so that's a really, you know, low hanging fruit option to um, kind of, you know, precipitate some of these things.
0: And earlier you mentioned as well, uh, fascial slings. Yes. Now for people who don't know what the slings are, can you take us through what they are and why they might be important when considering fascia training?
1: For sure. So the, the slings are, we'll start with the basics, the anterior and the posterior sling. You're thinking basically like a seatbelt from one shoulder to the opposite hip. And I see these as just areas of densified collagen and and areas of that represent chronic stress so if we think about you know the rotational aspect of locomotion or walking sprinting jogging right we're getting this subtle shift of left right exchange and doing this over time and and you know with high repetition and underload and all these different things no differently than the way bone gets broken down to get rebuilt and muscle tissue gets broken down to be rebuilt Fascial tissue is the same way, in which you know areas of high stress or or high force, there's going to be a higher presence or concentration of collagen development. So over time, these slings start to become more robust and they're they're you know more prominent within our movement patterns. So for the sling patterns, we're thinking you know about dead bugs, bird dogs, again crawling patterns, anything that is contralateral in nature is going to. In a sense, be a sling specific movement. Chops are another one. You can do a million different chop variations. I love med ball work, just throwing med balls in different directions at different velocities. Um, and over time, you know, with these, these fascial slings, you'll notice that your, your movement just kind of becomes a little bit more streamlined. You're a little bit more fluent and efficient with your, your actions because I think that we are getting more return on our, our elastic properties. And I think that we are able to then. Um, kind of utilize that that energy in a in a forward manner a little bit better.
0: And uh, when it comes to then that strength training what you were you were going through before I rudely interrupt you of course you were <laughs> going through that that strength training um and going through some different examples. Uh you mentioned that then for example max training might or max strength training might take a back seat uh, what kind of uh, sets and reps are you then using for the for the other exercises? If you're using 65 plus percent, are you going to uh, 15 repetitions, or are you just keeping it short and sharp? How how does that look for you?
1: So it, this one starts with uh, stage of development, right? So I think for you know if we just arbitrarily say you know younger novice athletes from 12 to 16, 12 to 18, I think that th- that's a group. For a population that, that needs to develop foundational strength. And this is, you know, just conventional classic applications. But we definitely need to have a robust profile or, or platform of strength to build off of for all of this fascial stuff to be elucidated, uh, really. So again, for me personally, I'm working almost in exclusively with an adult population, most of whom have that good, robust foundation of strength. And so from that point forward, you know, we're back now taking this fascial-based approach. I just don't I I don't know that I see a tremendous amount of value for most athletes just going through the rigors of pursuing more and more weight, bigger back squat numbers, bigger push press numbers. um, It it just seems to be a low return for me. So to answer your question directly here, if we take uh, we'll just do a simple side by side. If we have a conventional model, athlete is back squatting five by five at 85 percent and then we have a fascial based model at the same sequence or at the same point of the season, we'll say, maybe they're at 65% and we're going to do five sets of three. But those three reps are going to be a fast eccentric and an explosive concentric action. And rather than being in a bilateral stance, as the conventional athlete at five by five is, we're going to be working from a split stance. The reason being is in that split stance, we're more reflective of that locomotive patterning. So this is going to give us you know, more emphasis or more strain on those fascial chains or on those fascial slings. And uh, just for the sake of the example, we'll say I'm going to have my athlete on the fascial side uh, split squatting with no shoes on. So we're still doing a a primary movement. We're still doing a a compound loading, a compound load, um, and we're still doing a squat. But we just manipulated or modified those parameters um, to make one more or less fascial oriented versus having the opposite being more muscular dominant.
0: I think that's a, a super interesting insight. And before we run out of time completely, I want to get your your thoughts on that for the upper body as well, because obviously for for the lower body that's uh, that's pretty clear. That side by side was a great analysis. Um, what does that mean for the upper body? Um, so, for example, if you take a, a dumbbell bench press. Um, yeah. Doing a unilateral bench press is pretty difficult because the stability was obviously something that you needed to produce force. So is that something that you still consider for for upper body pressing and pulling?
1: Yeah, for sure. And you know what? I'll take you a step further, Matt. Actually, uh, one thing that I've done a lot of uh, done a lot of work with is offset loading. Um, and so if we use the bench press as the example here, we'll do the same thing. Five by five at 85 percent on one side on the fascial base side. Maybe we don't symmetrically load the bar. And we we use this offset setup. So, you know, for instance, if we have uh, a 45 on each side of the bar, we would just add a 10 on the one side, have them come down five reps with an offset to the left, pull the 10 off, put it on the other side, and then they'll go right back into it with a plus 10 pound offset on the right side. Um, or I'm sorry, I don't know if I need to speak kilos here, but in either case, um, (laughs)
0: that's all good, mate. It's all good.
1: You know, so that's another one that's novel. Um, and I think just gives you when when you're doing
0: that, safety is important as well, right? Because I had an athlete last week who did this unintentionally and almost fell off a bench
1: for sure. And, and you know, and this is another one, right? Where this is something that is secondary to developing a, a robust foundation of strength. And we can tie in just general training experience in that, you know, so. These are not things that I would say are prudent for a 15 or a 16 year old, somebody who's, you know, 25 early professional career or, again, in my case, you know, mid 30s tactical operator. Um, I think it provides a, 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 an opportunistic stimulus for them. Um, but even if we just scale that back a little bit, right, like you mentioned, you, you do using a unilateral dumbbell um, as opposed to using a symmetrically loaded barbell, I think is just advantageous for for most athletes who have already established foundational strength.
0: I think that's some absolutely excellent advice. So, Danny, massive thanks for your time and effort today. It's been a super interesting podcast, so thank you very much. And I look forward to speaking to you again soon.
1: Absolutely, Matt. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Cheers, buddy. Bye. And that's it. Once again, a massive thanks to Danny for all of his hard work on today's podcast. I really appreciate it. And I'm sure you do at home too. Before you leave, I want to point you in the direction of our Coach Academy. And the Coach Academy is a series of lectures broken down into bite-sized chunks. So if you enjoyed today's podcast and you want to get into some more depth on sport performance you can get a seven day free trial by clicking the link in the show notes so just click that link in a few seconds time and of course if you have enjoyed today's podcast it would be absolutely fantastic if you can leave us a review and give us a share on social media and of course if you enjoyed it enough to share it with a friend a colleague a co-worker or even a family member it would be absolutely fantastic too and that's it Once again, a massive thanks from me and Matt Solomon for Science of Sport and I'll speak to you next week.